When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Courtney Zoffness. Courtney Zoffness is the author of the memoir and essay Spilt Milk, out now in paperback. Spilt Milk was named a Best Debut of the Year by Book Page and Refinery29, and a must-read by Publishers Weekly and Good Morning America. Also a fiction writer, Zoffness was the second-ever woman to win the Sunday Times Short Story Award, the most valuable international prize for short fiction, amid entries from 38 countries. Other honors include an Emerging Writers Fellowship from the Center for Fiction and two residency fellowships from McDowell. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Paris Review Daily, Guernica, No Tokens, and elsewhere. Zoffness holds graduate degrees from the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University and the University of Arizona and a BA from the University of Pennsylvania. Currently, she directs the creative writing program at Drew University. She lives with her family in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. Um, I absolutely loved Spilt Milk when it came out. I mean, you know, McSweeney's publishing uh, an essay collection. I'm going to run <laughs> and get it as soon as I can. Uh-huh. I also really love that on the cover, at least on your um, on your hardcover, it says memoirs. Yeah. I think that is rare for someone to to, you know, it's usually a memoir or essays, but yours is memoirs. I mean, it was really my publisher uh, and, you know, I think it's been reviewed or discussed critically as a memoir in essays. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I th- conceived of it as a collection of essays, but I think the word memoir denotes personal content. Mm-hmm. I think essays can do a whole lot of things, including being very outward looking and that's just not the style of these. So mm-hmm. the word seemed like an apt, like wink to to that quality. Yeah. And I just love the notion of little mini memoirs, you know, like little <laughs> bits of my life. I don't know. It sounds like my ovoir. It's like my memoirs. <laughs> my memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, will you read us a little bit of your memoirs? I will read some of my memoirs. Um <laughs> I'm going to read, um, I don't know, I guess in lieu of uh, some news over the last few days regarding um, gun violence, mm-hmm. uh, not that it's 
new news because it's daily news in, yeah. in this country. Yeah. Uh, but it has me, you know, feeling uh, reanimated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to read an excerpt from an essay called Boy in Blue, which is um, probably the hardest one among these and 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 maybe the most important to me for mm-hmm. obvious reasons, mm-hmm. or maybe not obvious, but for various reasons. Um, and I don't think it requires any setup, so I'll just, I'll read a bit from the beginning. Most mornings, my four-year-old arrests me. Usually he's in uniform, a blue jacket with yellow buttons and a matching peaked cap. I saw you stealing, he'll say, nose crumpled like he smells trash. He yanks toy handcuffs out of his pocket and jiggles them. You're going to jail. The narrative plays out a number of ways, depending on how much coffee I've had, how committed I am to role-playing at 7 a.m. For how long, I might say. Five minutes, he'll reply. Or else something more cryptic and unsettling. Nineteen. Nineteen what? I resist, say, it wasn't me, officer, you're mistaken. Sometimes his brother Oliver, age six, is my alibi. It wasn't mommy. Officer Leo squints, shifts his lower jaw from side to side, mumbles something to headquarters on his faux walkie-talkie. His superiors are surprisingly flexible. I'm sorry, ma'am, he says finally and unfastens my binds. It wasn't you. It was someone who looked like you, which is to say a woman whom the world sees as white. I ascribe Leo's fixation to geography. We live two doors down from a New York City precinct station. Before we moved in, my thoughts on the apartment's location were comprehensible. I disliked how the huge municipal building sapped the block of charm, wondered if we'd be less likely to have our bikes stolen off our front patio. Nope. If we'd have ready access to help? Yep. Officers have twice given our dead car engine a jump. What I didn't account for were the effects of my son's exposure to law enforcement. How after a Minneapolis police officer killed George Floyd by kneeling on his neck, our block would be cordoned off for weeks to prevent citizens from demonstrating their rightful outrage, and come nightfall would serve as headquarters for state police and ICE officers in combat gear. I didn't consider that a dozen times a day all year long, we'd walk past men and women in uniform on our shared sidewalk, Sometimes they're in bulletproof vests. Sometimes they're gathered ceremoniously on the precinct steps. Sometimes they're leading a person in handcuffs out of the back seat of a, of a cruiser and across our path into the station. My children study their equipment belts, which are at their eye level, look back and forth between the arrestee and the officers clutching their elbows. Leo will want to know things when we get home, what the bad guy did, I'm not sure. How the officers caught him, I don't know. If the handcuffs lock, since his do not, and what kind of food they serve in jail, and if the person will be in prison for one or 11 days, and what do the officers do if he escapes? Leo will want me to know that when he's a cop, he will be the best bad guy getter in Brooklyn. My toes curl. I will wonder, what would he dress like if we lived on a different block, in a different city, in a different country? Sometimes I push other outfits. Want to be a superhero today, I say, or a sea creature? I dig out a squid hat. 
My suggestions confused him. No, he says, clipping a ring of keys to his belt loop. I told you, I want to be an officer. Also, he says, he's missing something that all real officers have, a gun. Can't he get a toy one? I'll stop there. Thank you so much. I When I read that, um, it very much resonated with me. I've got three kids and they love to two of them mainly really love thinking about bad guys and how to get the bad guys and, and how there's, you know, and I I think part of it is, I mean, they see police officers all the time. We both live in cities. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I live like two blocks down from a fire station um, and they see it all the time, but it's also just, it's such a natural obsession for a child. I think they don't, everything is black and white, you know, it's, it's good and it's bad, it, you know, like there's good and there's bad and it's as simple as that. And that's how they understand the world. And I think as parents and especially maybe as writers who are obsessed with nuance, you want to do right by them, you know, while at the same time explaining how guns aren't, aren't solutions, you know, and that they're made to kill. And then you have to have that conversation. Um, it's so complicated. It is. It really is. And I think part of what, what makes it so complicated is trying to find the language to explain it to a small human who can only process it, you know, at a certain right. level. Right. And I, and I, I find myself, you know, I, and I know, you know, it's, it's in your essay too. And I, and I know like you, you want to encourage imaginative play. You want to be a part of that world. Um, but you also, you know, you, you want to show them that the world is a little bit more complicated, you know, in, in, in small doses that, you know, that you can dole out to your, your six-year-old, your four-year-old. Um, but I found that like doing that almost made them fetishize it even more, you know, like, they, like, like, no, no, like talking to them about like, well, you know, sometimes they arrest the wrong person and, you know, some, the way that we treat our prisoners isn't right. And, you know, we should, you know, and and talking about that um, and, and limiting toy guns in my house, because originally it was no, no toy guns whatsoever. Um, And then they would get little Lego toys and they would have little, little, little Lego guns and you can't, you can't, you know, and so then it was like, okay, water squirters are fine. Okay. Nerf guns are fine, but we have to call them blasters, you know? And it's so inescapable. I mean, they pick up sticks and make them guns. It's yes. like, it doesn't matter. I mean, not to say parents have no influence or, you know, leverage, but, you know, they will build it. There's no way around it. And, you know, mm-hmm. like I walk into any room and I get fake shot by my kids every day, yeah. every day. Likewise. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. I see them doing it at school. And like when it's banana day in the lunchroom. Oh yeah. They're perfect weapons. Yep. Yeah. We have to say, no, no, they're phones play like they're phones. <laughs> I, but that, you know, I mean, this is part of what the essay grapples with and what yes. I continue to grapple with still as a mother of boys or just mother of children that, you know, what is it? I mean, is it righteous? Like, what are we trying to prove here by, by renaming it, by denying it? Like, you know, my my son regularly renews this conversation at like sort of a couple times a year. But mm-hmm. why can't I have guns? What mm-hmm. you know, and understanding it differently at every stage. Uh, and, you know, I still feel like, you know, 
explaining to him that it's not that I think you're going to grow up to become a mass murderer. Not, I don't say this to him, but <laughs> embedded in the logic is like, it's not that I think this is a gateway to real violence. It's more that I just can't abide seeing them because of, you know, the ways in which capitalism has made them fun. Yeah. And also you're confronted daily with these stories and then you don't want to come home and see that glorification in your own home. Yes. But I'm torn. I mean, I grew up going to the shooting range. My grandfather taught us how to make bullets, you know, like we shot rifles, we did target practice and stuff like that. And I am very much against guns, you know? And so I'm torn because I want, it's the same, like, I don't eat meat, but I let my kids eat meat because I don't want them to over romanticize because I'm not denying it. I I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. I'm there with you. You know, it's really, yeah. Yeah. It's like, we talk about current events as much as we can and you know, they have to do active shooter drills in their school. Yep. Um, which yeah, I don't think they're was called on that. Lockdown but... two weeks ago because some. I was going to ask you about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, some crazy came up to the schoolyard and started shouting that he was going to kill them all and their families, and so that they had to abandon their backpacks and run inside. Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, I think it was. What What do I know? But some just some sort of unhinged person, not, and this was not a credible threat, but every threat is potentially credible until it's proven otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can't, you can't play around with stuff like that. No. Yeah. And How it was are your kids processing it. Um, well, it was only one. I had my older son, believe it or not, is in middle school now in sixth grade at a different no! school. <laughs> I know it's like books freeze them in time. time. Oh. They actually age. It's weird. Uh, yeah. So this was only one of my sons. I think he, he didn't hear what happened. He wasn't like close enough to the gate. He just knew that recess ended early. Um, you know, so he was grouchy about that. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, of course, the highlight of, of the school day. Of course. Yeah. So I, I don't think he knew as much as some other kids who were close enough yeah. to that person. So it's a blessing. <laughs> it was. It was. It was. There at my children's school, we got an email from the principal um, last fall that there was a full intact bullet found on their, at their playground and it it had not been shot. It was just there. And so, you know, the email went out and everyone was notified and they did a full security check and they did all these things. And the way that my kids have processed that over time is truly wild. I mean, my 10 year old is like, understands someone probably brought it to school and thought it was cool or whatever. But my seven-year-old is like turning it into something bigger, you know, more sinister. Yeah. Like, yeah, there, um, it was so-and-so, so-and-so brought it to school and they, they had that, you know, like really processing it in terms of like, what ifs, you know, but as if they were real. Um, and it just makes me wonder about like the things that I process through my own imaginative play, AKA writing. (laughs) And and also, I mean, you write fiction. I, I do too, you know, in my, my other brain mm-hmm. and the way in which you think you're writing one thing <laughs> and then it turns out you're working out something else. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yes. Does that happen to you with your nonfiction too? Uh, a little less so. I think nonfiction is a little more on the nose though. I I hope that I write dynamic enough essays that they do a lot at once, 
Yes. But I think fiction, it's, it's much more hidden from even myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I'm like, why am I writing about acts so many, like, why is this a theme in every, oh, it's like, you know, it's sort of a therapizing my own fiction. In some does that way. feel, I, I, does that feel scary to you? Like well, it's out of your control? No, it feels, I mean, on an intellectual level, it feels interesting to me. Okay. It's like, oh, I guess I'm working that out. Uh, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't feel scary to me. It doesn't. I think there are some things that do, which mm-hmm. is, um, I mean, sort of a side conversation, but, uh, you know, trying not to write about some things that I have ethical issues with mm-hmm. and trying to find a way around those. I think that um, provides more of a challenge and um, is more of a struggle. And a Do you want to talk about in specifics what those are? Um, you could say no. Yeah, maybe no, because yeah. I mean, par- partly because I'm not, not comfortable sort of broadcasting them, but you know, it does bring up this issue too. Like people who've, who know me and read spilt milk will say, you know, it's like, I feel like I read your autobiography. I feel like I know everything about you when, oh wow, when in truth, I feel like, you know, I touched 10% of what's intimate to me in mm-hmm. this book and 90% of what's most personal does not appear in these pages. Mm-hmm. Kind of an, an interesting curation, right? Which I'm, I suspect a lot of um, memoirists and nonfiction writers make these choices too. And some to, you know, all to different extents. Uh, but now that I'm back to writing fiction, I'm thinking a lot about what that genre label actually protects. Mm. And if there are individuals or individual situations uh, that, and I don't want the folks I care about to recognize themselves in them, I don't think calling it fiction will make them feel any safer if they can see themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this curious thing where, you know, I felt like, ah, fiction, now I can really go to town. Um, (laughs) I I can't. I, I find myself still bumping up against that wall. Have these people noticed themselves in your writing before? Um, no, because I, there are some things I just can't. You just don't. Okay. I was talking about this with someone recently about, maybe it was sort of vague and cool. No, 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 please. I I love a boundary. Um, (laughs) I really do. I'm not great at them. So good. No, no, I'm, I'm all about it. Um, I think I was talking to Marissa about our family, Marissa Crane about our families, um, reading our work and then maybe like where we thought we had put them they don't even know that that's them. (laughs) Like they're recognizing something else. But you know, that's kudos to you for doing the work of a fiction writer. I I think it, I really think it's just lack of self-awareness. Yeah. I think it's a, (laughs) a, a, a perception of self that, um, I don't know. There's people in my life that can see other people clearly, but they can't truly see themselves. Um, I wonder if we all have this blindness in some totally. way. Yeah. Oh God, I would give anything for someone to tell me my blind spots. <laughs> you know? But that's so interesting that even when you're rendering them in your mind accurately, it's it's invisible to to them. That's right. So- right. Which is like again a blessing. <laughs> oh, completely. 
And then there's the flip side where I remember, you know, writing a short story about some imagined relationship and being confronted by friends who were like, you really need to break up with your boyfriend. Yes. What? Oh my God. Do you think, I really think women writers have to confront that more than men do where it's like, we're just assumed that we're, we're writing something from our lives. Right. I feel that, you know, I'm writing something right now and the husband is like kind of an idiot asshole. And, um, I'm like, oh God, people are going to think my husband's an idiot asshole, you know? Especially if you're like channeling first person or even close third. Yeah, totally. Yes. yes. And I, I feel like men, you know, men are given more credit than we are. For having an imagination. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Being able to imagine beyond the boundaries of themselves. I'm just sitting down and I'm looking around in my family and I'm just writing what I see everyone. Right. Cause that's, we're limited, you know, as well. That's all we do. <laughs> um, well, I want to ask you specifically about spilt milk. Did you always know I'm going to put together my memoirs never. or never? Okay. Tell me. Uh, I self-identify as a fiction writer, even though all of this stuff is true. Uh, and I started writing these essays during pregnancy and early motherhood because I was, you know, teasing out knots and things I was observing or experiences I was having. And I thought of them as one-offs. And then, but they were hitting the finish line much more quickly in part because I think I was eager to gain clarity for myself in certain situations, or I would have an experience say around pumping, for example, Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just, need to channel that into some sort of shape. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I blame a friend who (laughs) invited me to give a reading and then I had to gather up some of the things that I had written recently and realized there was a through line among several of the essays and that it shared that in common with another one I was writing and one I planned to write. And, you know, I was accused of writing a book and it turned out to (laughs) be true. (laughs) <laughs> so you never envisioned a no. being a nonfiction, you know, book writer. I have two graduate degrees in fiction, you know, I oh. like really never, really never did though. I love consuming creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many of my favorite writers make it. Um, and, you know, so it's not, I guess, entirely surprising that I produced, you know, something in the vein of the kinds of books I'm, I'm drawn to reading, but, but yeah, no, it, it came, it came as a curveball. What do you think about early motherhood and pregnancy draw? I mean, cause I, I felt the same way, you know, and I, I, I was writing in a whole new way in those days. Um, what do you think about that? It is about that time that that draws us creators, you know, to these kinds of quests. You know, you said us as creators and while I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, our literally building bodies. Literally creating bodies. humans. <laughs> I mean, I think if you're like a curious person who doesn't go through the world robotically, that it's not like, oh, now I'm married. Oh, now I'm going to just have a child. Like if you, if you're thoughtful about like, what this is crazy that I can Mm -hmm. just create a human being it still Mm -hmm. fucking blows my mind and I have to (laughs) uh you know and or 
perhaps if you have a complicated relationship to your parents, mm-hmm. uh, it's a provocative time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it feels and not it feels it's high stakes. I mean, this is a high stakes endeavor mm-hmm. to become a parent and you want to do right by these human beings who never asked to be brought into the world, you know, and mm-hmm. how do you do that? You know, I, th- I just think if, you, again, if you're like a thoughtful and ethical person who is concerned about the world via the news and per our earlier initial conversation, uh, and also want to create like empathetic, compassionate, thoughtful human beings, you know, this is like a complicated and really important role to mm-hmm. undertake. Mm-hmm. And write a book. Right. So I right. guess your bigger question was like, why writing? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, writing for me is how I make sense of things. I don't think I can hold enough in my mind <laughs> without writing it down to, to sort of come to kind, a kind of understanding You know, there's the adage you write to sort of discover what you know. I think Patricia Hempel was the first one to say that. Not Joan Didion? I don't know. It gets bandied about. Okay. Is it Joan? No, you're probably right. No, I I think she said she writes to understand what she thinks of something, something like that. Which are, you know, they're cousins. Right. But I, I see so much truth to that. I mean, and, and per like writing fiction and discovering that you're channeling something else. I mean, no matter the genre, I do think there are ways in which uh, it's a processing mechanism. Yes. If we don't approach it that way or think of it that way. It's like, I'm just going to tell a really fun story. <laughs> um, but often, you know, threaded in that, if you're a literary writer, it's there's often a lot more going on. So, yeah. I mean, I think the combination of this just being an intense high stakes time and a compulsion to understand and tell stories breeds, you know, sort of a natural approach to writing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm writing to refine myself because I remember everyone kept asking me like right after my son was born, my first son was born, like, you know, or reminding me that this was going to change me and wanting to know how it was going to, how it was changing my writing. And I absolutely rejected that, you know, like how dare you, but it was true because no huge life event is going to leave you fully as you were. How did it change your writing? I'm still trying to figure that out. I, one thing that I, that seems to be true is that I can no longer write very short pieces. Mm. I just, it just like pours out of me. Um, so I'm trying to teach myself to go short again, but we'll see. But I, you know, I, I think now I'm leaving space for um, like change is always coming. It's net. That's like the one constant, I think, after kids come and maybe just in general in life as you go grow older is yeah. you're always having to adapt. Um, and I look I back think- on like the my early adulthood before kids and I'm like wow that was really like actually kind of a calm time (laughs) I know you thought everything was crazy then yes that was so chill uh it's interesting to hear you say that you can't go short anymore because I feel like I'm I'm you know I go extra short wow 
but but not because I have less to say, just because it's like I'm writing in tinier snatches of time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tried to write a very trim 2000 word story recently, and it it's 9000 words. <laughs> but I, I think different writers are wired differently. Some just yeah. go long. That might just be you. I think it is. I guess. So. I mean, like, I, I guess I, fi- I, I have two collections of flash and I guess that was it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You've graduated. <laughs> yeah. When you were writing these essays, were you also dabbling in fiction? Yes. But as soon as I realized that these cohered, I think I just invested only in the nonfiction. Yeah. Um, but I, I was for a while doing both. Yeah. Do you feel like they play well with each other or do you, do you have to like completely put one down to focus on another? I'm, I like to write multiple things at once and whether it's multiple essays or essays and stories. And now I'm working on what I think and hope is a novel. I think, I don't know. Yeah. What do I know? I can't go long. I'm telling you. Uh, yeah, I think. So I think they do play well um, with each other. And it's, it is always interesting to see uh, themes that arise, no matter what you write, you know, mm-hmm. the ways in which you gravitate to certain kinds of things or subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think I'm writing a lot more mothers into my fiction now. Oh my goodness. How can one not? You know? Right. Right. I, I know. I, I, that's probably one of the biggest changes I, there was a lot of like creepy babies in my pre-motherhood stuff. Scary babies. Yeah. Oh, are and, they less scary now? Well, now, you know, I think it's like a different kind of fear. It's more ang- anxiety, you know, but there's mm-hmm. more mothers. Yeah. It's more, you know, it's, it's kind of like what happened um, when I realized I, I more identify with the parents in my so-called life now than I do Angela. <laughs> Oh, my God. oh no I know I have to rewatch it I know I mean I still I can of course still access those feelings that I had when I watched the show when I was 14 but yeah. now I can see where, where the parents are coming from and I'm like oh god I remember that, that being the biggest compliment somebody once told me I looked like Angela and myself <gasps> the and dream I was like go on yes can continue. oh my god I would have I would have ripped my own face off if I could, if I could go to the store like Claire's and got, buy like a Claire Danes mask. Oh, man. I think a lot of people want to know what it's like to work with McSweeney's. Yeah. Um, and so I would love to know, like from submitting it to them to the final product to paperback, I want to know, you know, what that was like. Yeah. I'm not saying this to, you know, tooth their horn, lest anybody ever listen. They're truly a dream. Uh, I had the most glorious experience. Also, I have nothing to compare it to, but I, I mean, <laughs> they're just incredibly wonderful and thoughtful all around. They, they put out a few books, which enables them to really throw their weight behind each title. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, it felt very special uh, and really lovely. Uh, my, my way in was publishing an essay, um, Hot for Teacher, which appears in this book. Such a uh, good one. Thank you. It, um, it initially appeared in Indelible in the Hippocampus, uh, oh, a Me wow. Too anthology mm-hmm. edited by Shelley Oria um, and published by McSweeney's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had, you know, some kind of 
conversation already in progress with them when the book started to come together. Um, and I will say, you know, with my agent, we we went out more widely. Um, McSweeney's is a nonprofit, you know, and it is desirable as a writer to get paid nicely. Uh-huh. It doesn't always <laughs> work out that way. Right. Um, but not not quitting my day job. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of big publishers are wary of taking chances on essay collections or memoirs and essays or memoirs because, memoirs. you know, they, you know, they're just babies. They don't, they're afraid to take risks. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's risky, but, um, you know, that McSweeney's became my publisher just seemed like a, a really appropriate evolution, um, from mm-hmm. having had their published my essay to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear how, um, you know, revising went with them, how you came upon the cover for your hardcover and your paperback. Sure. They have a really fascinating and maybe one of a kind publishing model, which is that Amanda Yuli, who's the publishing, the publisher, um, is the acquiring editor. And they have a small wheelhouse of freelance editors. Wow. After the book is acquired, they assign an editor or they, I think, circulate, I believe they circulate your manuscript to some of their editors and, and, you know, a match is made, but it's not the acquiring editor who becomes your editor. It's very, really curious. Wow. I was super lucky because among those people in their wheelhouse is a writer named Rita Bullwinkle, who I had met at McDowell and kind of fallen in love with, you know, platonically, but intellectually in all the ways creatively. Uh, And she said, yes. Oh my (laughs) gosh. She's such a glorious person um, and such a whip smart, thoughtful, creative writer. Uh, So that was incredibly dreamy. Uh, And, you know, the, how the editing went, I think it was boy in blue that actually got the most um, editorial, had the most editorial work done to it because it used to look really different. Really? What changed? It used to be much more about um, a crime I committed in my youth. What? Which is in here. It's in there. Oh, 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 okay. Okay. Yep. My stupid shoplifting crime. I I know that sounds more dramatic. Yes. yes. I I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Stole some clothes because I'm lame. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I think um, to her credit, she pointed out that sort of the, how, how that played out in the legal system was kind of obvious like of course that's what would happen to me Mm -hmm. Um, and we thought of ways to sort of reconsider um making it much more about my son's fascination with policing Mm -hmm. um so i think the weight was differently distributed essentially Got got it uh okay and in terms of cover um i mean this is another reason i Bless McSweeney's. I'm superficial. I'm like a beautiful book cover. So, mm-hmm. and they clearly do too. They like make these beautiful art objects. Um, the first cover cover was um, made by Eleanor Taylor, who's a UK artist. Mm-hmm. Sunmer Thompson is their art director. He has a whole, you know, well of of visual artists that he draws upon that he thinks match the aesthetic of the book. I don't know. It's some sort of synergistic process that he's very good at. Uh, and 
the water image came via Amanda Yuli, who's the publisher, who thought there was water present in so many of these essays, which I hadn't noticed, but she's wow. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they cover a range of subjects, we needed an image that, you know, wasn't too on the nose um, because there, maybe there was no nose. It was a range of subjects. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that was her idea. And then between Sunra and I and, and this artist, Eleanor, um, that was the origin story for the cover. And then, I mean, they gave it a second life in paperback, which is like just such a dream and a brand new, beautiful cover. I just, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if people know, but paperback is like not guaranteed. No, it's not guaranteed. And it's, I mean, McSweeney's probably publishes 10 titles a year and then maybe half of those, if that go to paperback. So it was just like the margins were getting smaller and smaller. I was just, I'm really lucky. uh, And I'm glad this book has resonated with people and, Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm grateful that they helped in that effort because there are so many beautiful books that don't resonate because they don't get discovered because readers can't find them. Yep. And it's a, it's a sad truth, but like the trumpets need to blare, you know, whatever press, you know, machine works. I mean, it has to work. I didn't understand when my last novel came out, like, I didn't understand anything. I didn't know pre-orders were important. I didn't know anything either. Yeah. I didn't get, I had no idea. Like, I just remember being like, well, people will buy it when it comes out. Right. You know, like, I don't need to do any of the marketing work. It's not intuitive. No, no, it's not. Writers. And it's also like not writing. It's like right. all this work that you have to do that is so not writing. Uh, and, you know, it's easy to resent it and to feel like that's, this should not be my job, you know? And then also you've worked really fucking hard to make something and you want people to to, to find it. To know yeah. It. I just, yeah. I just thought like it comes out and then people buy it. But it turns out if there's not enough pre-ordering excitement, then it just kind of can die. <laughs> right. And so it's, you know, now I'm like so much more aware, you know, there's things I will do differently. I guess I'll be more annoying, <laughs> but it's like, you yeah. have to, right? Like you have to. And I, and I want to say like, we have to stop calling it annoying because we're required to do this. We are. And when I see people whose writing I love start to talk about their pre-orders and their pre-publicity and all that, I get so excited. Well, that's amazing. I, you know, I, I feel like that's a nice default as opposed to the eye roll because. Right. And I think that's what we're all imagining. We're all imagining people being like, oh, next. But I think a lot of people, yeah. Like, I think a lot of people are actually excited, you know? Yes. Um, so. I'm excited to pre-order your book. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about your fiction, if that's okay. That's definitely okay. Okay. So how long have you been working on this book that you th- are hoping is a novel? It's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to say in part because I've not you know, known for that long what shape it was taking. I have a mm. couple of ideas that I'm sort of trying to marry. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if they were going to be separate stories, but now I think I'm entwining them. So it's a little hard to say also because I've had kind of a, a difficult year and mm. have not been especially productive mm-hmm. um, as happens because life can life. be. Yes. Um, and so 
you know, I'm always curious about the, like, how long ha has one been working on something question? Because, you know, if it's Philip Roth, who spends morning, noon, and night at work, that's like a different measure of time yep. than someone who works here. And then several weeks later, you know, finds another snatch of time. Absolutely. That's a really so, good point. Yeah. And so I think it's a, it's a hard question to answer so that the, the truth is I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but recently, <laughs> I, yeah, like, I mean, definitely over this year, I've been poking at it, poking at it. I really um, love the idea of bringing two what you thought were disparate ideas together. Yes. And finding all the ways in which they connect and like influence each other and have a conversation and even like uh, reject each other in an interesting way. Totally. I guess I'm, I'm like, can these two things live together? Like yes. what would happen if they did? Uh, yeah. So it's, it's been like, a, you know, an intellectual exercise and I'm not an outliner and I, you know, sort of right into the dark, mm -hmm. but I've, I've forced myself to do a little counterintuitive kind of brainstorming just because I'm approaching this challenge that I've mm -hmm. not taken on before either. Uh, so it's like, what are some versions wherein these two things can live together? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I just read um, Hillary Leichter's ter uh, Terra story, which um, I'm excited to read it. Oh my God. I like, I absolutely loved uh, Temporary. Yes. And um, it was just a book I, unlike any that I've ever read before. And she was on the pod and she read a, um, a little bit from, um, or she read a story called Two Judies. Um, but then was talking about Tara's story and I finally got to read it and it felt at first like, wait, are these two different, like completely different worlds? Like now I get now I'm even more excited to read it. Okay. Oh my God. But then they dovetail. Oh yeah. She's a master. She's a genius. And, and it's this like really fun intellectual puzzle that I, um, that I like cherish as a reader. Um, and, uh, and it's been like very inspiring, you know, to, to think of ways that I could try to do the same thing or use, you I know, love that. yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's really exciting to hear you talk about it. I know that your book will be different, you know, very different and, you know, but I, I just, well, I think it's so I'm cool. here for all the, all the models and all the different ways writers approach something like this. Yeah. yeah. Like to back yourself into a corner and be like, where, now what? <laughs> where do I go? Yeah. So fun. I love that. Um, and you, I, I had no idea that the Sunday times award was the most valuable, ridiculous short fiction yeah. award. And then I, I was Googling it and it might not exist anymore. Just saw that too. Cause audible yeah. backed away. Audible backed away as a sponsor. When, when I had won, it was um, the EFG Bank, which is right. some European bank. Yeah. But, you know, it's $42,000 prize. Oh, my god! And then they host this huge, you know, sort of gala to do it. I mean, it's it's not, it, it's it's real money. Uh, so I, I, get, I guess they need, you know, some sort of rich enterprise that cares about short fiction. Right. Who is that? I don't know. I'm going to go can we talk to? knocking on some doors. Yeah. Dear Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Elon. <laughs> you know you love a good short story. You could make up for a little bit of your terribleness. Oh my gosh. If you just give us a little bit of your money. 
Well, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that, that that comes back because writers, I mean, why does it feel so gross to say I, I need money, (laughs) you know, like why I I hear that there's a really good story with that prize to the extent, you know, this is at all inspiring uh, to whomever may, you know, want to write, you know, I entered that contest because I read about it probably in like poets and writers and mm-hmm. like printed out my own silly story and like popped it in the mail and didn't realize that for the most part, these were like agents entering on behalf of their authors. Like oh the two gosh. previous years, years had been Juno Diaz and, and Anthony Dorr. And right. oh I remember gosh. watching an interview with Juno Diaz and they were like, why did you pick this story? And he was like, my agent did. He, she just must have liked it the best, you oh, know? Wow. And no one had ever heard of me. You know, I I was the only writer still to this day without a published book. I just entered my own silly story. Like That I, is incredible. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. And Miranda July was a finalist that year. And Oh, Curtis, my gosh. Yeah, and Curtis Sittenfeld. And, oh. you know, and here we're all at the gala. And I was like, drinking a lot of wine. Like, oh. well, fun to be here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Like definitely never imagined pulling that one off. Oh, wow. But I I do think it is a vote for like just being your own advocate. Like who's entering you into these things? Like you are, you know? Yep. I I mean, I send the New Yorker a story like two or three times a year. Yeah. Email it to them. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, it's me again. Yep. Yep. They did Thank send me you so much for your form form letter rejection. Yep. Um, I, I guess you I guess you don't like Britney Spears. Okay, here's something else. Um <laughs> they uh they did send me like a, a nice rejection once, which felt you yes. know which felt good. But um yeah, I just I don't I know that agents do this on their author's behalf, but I just I'm too impatient. I just I <laughs> I just send with you. Yep. Yeah, you got to do it. You do. And again, I think much like being your own publicist, that's not always an instinctive move. Like writing the thing is different than pushing it into the world. Yes, absolutely. So we're lucky if we're sort of able to wear that hat too. I think it helps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like having to be, I think it's better now. I think there was like a, a brief period of time where you were expected to have like this huge social media following. And now people realize like that doesn't actually matter. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what it's going to look like. Do, some agents still do think it matters. I don't care, but. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's the same notion of like, oh my, I had a tweet that went viral. Here's my, here's my book. If you want to buy it, and then nobody does. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about is teaching. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how that informs your work and, and, you know, what it does for your, your life in general? Sure. So I've been teaching for 20 years at the college level, which is crazy to say. Now I feel like an old hag. (laughs) Um, And I've taught at a range of institutions and I'm pretty settled where I am, um, I'm at Drew University, which um, is in New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, and I just went up for tenure, so pray to the... <gasps> oh my gosh, I'm knocking on wood. There we go. Um, and I derive so much pleasure from teaching. I hope, you know, this doesn't 
come across wrong, but I, I often say to my husband that I wish I didn't love to teach so much because um, well, for starters, it, it takes a lot when you yeah. care about it and want to do it right or do it well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but also you don't earn that much. Mm-hmm. As an academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just find the work to be incredibly satisfying. So the, the students I teach at Drew are really earnest uh, and they're all undergrads. They want to be in those rooms. You're giving them books they may never have encountered otherwise. They're engaged. They're eager to be creative. I mean, I'm speaking on the whole. Of course, there are exceptions. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've also taught at some fancier places where it was more about getting a certain grade, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not where I am now. They they care about doing well, but it, they care also about engaging with the work. So I just find... You know, I find it to be really invigorating. I teach a lot of things that I want to reread, you know, design classes around subjects that I'm fascinated by. I did a coming of age in contemporary literature class. Ooh, what did you teach? What books did you teach or stories? Yeah, it's multi-genre. So okay. I had to teach um, poetry, prose, and drama. Um, so what? for drama, I taught How I Learned to Drive, oh, Paula wow. Vogel's wonderful play. Mm-hmm. Um I taught and then I realized there was like a lot of sexual misconduct, but you know, <laughs> they're often, it's like sex and sexuality is so much a part of that experience that it yep. just shows up a lot. Yep. Uh, we, the animals by Justin oh, Torres, wow. who has yep. my heart forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught some Emma Klein. I taught, um, let's see in the poetry sector, uh, Joseph Legaspi, and gosh, um, I'm blanking, but a lot. It was, I mean, I had to make my own sort of course packet. What a great idea. I love that for, I mean, I would run to that class. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot. There's, um, yeah, now I'm, I'm going to hit myself after this for all the authors who I failed to name who I taught in that class, but um, anyway, how does teaching inform my writing? I mean, it forces me to like pay attention to craft. I mm-hmm. mean, there's nothing quite like having to teach the way a story is constructed to make you stare at it. Mm-hmm. So it just by default continues to like engage with all of my sort of creative interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I found myself like, you know, the the courses that I've taught over the past few years, um, and I'm about to teach one on the novel, having to put into words these things that you do silently alone, you know? Right. Um, and like, you're always, I, I know that I'm always, and I'm sure you are always, like your influences are always running through your mind. You're always thinking of the books that you love, the books that you're reading, you know? And like having to like explain to yourself and explain to students like why you're thinking right. about them or why they help, you know? Um, it really does. It really is helpful. Yeah, for sure. I I continue to find it that way. And I'm also, this is what I mean by like, I wish I didn't love to teach always redoing my sit labai to keep myself engaged. Mm -hmm. You know, you could just phone it in and teach the same things over and over and learn to hate those texts. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I, I want the sort of invigoration to be visible and contagious and, and, myself to feel re-excited and by the way I'm I've just looked up my syllabus so I 
can tell you some other texts I taught. Yes. Kristen Valdez Quaid, um, Recitataf, Toni Morrison's long short story, her only oh, ever wow. short story. And then Zadie Smith wrote this, wrote this wonderful essay about that story. So we read both. Um, T.S.A. Layman. Oh, man. Heavy? Was it heavy? It was an excerpt of heavy. Yeah. Since I have to squeeze in three genres, Got I have it. to, yep. you know, pick and choose. Um, Patricia Smith. Um, Patricia Lockwood has this amazing poem called Rape Joke. I think I've read it. Again, about sexual misconduct. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's for this particular class and this age group um, and this generate, like it just... They had so much to say about wow. it, um, et cetera. Anyway, that does a slightly better job of addressing some of what it covered. Teach that online so we can all jo- join in. Okay. <laughs> okay. With all my, with all my free time. Yeah. In your spare time. My spare time. When you're not writing your novel, being a parent and running the creative writing program. Yeah. Drew. Yeah. Perfect. Great. Yeah, perfect. Great. <laughs> Glad we had this chat. <laughs> Um, if you had to recommend three essay collections, um, what would they be? Or essay writers? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say um, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Amazing. I love um, nonfiction that just is incredibly surprising and inventive. Mm-hmm. Um, T. Kara Madden's Long Live oh, the Fatherless Girls. I can't even, I can't hear her name or that title without collapsing it is such an incredible book it's so beautiful and you know I I think for her a lot of it started as essays that stitched and stitched together Mm -hmm. um that was a great model um and she's also just an incredibly generous human she is and I would say um anything by Joanne Beard Mm. and you know she had an essay collection has an essay collection called boys of my youth but her most recent book is fiction and nonfiction in the same spine. <gasps> and it's fascinating. Amazing. Just, like, I love that the permission granted by that, you know, by a book like that to other writers. It's like, yes. watch how I move and watch how I like, don't tell you all the things. And I can do both and I can do them at the same time. Wow. I, so many people have recommended Boys of My Youth and I have yet to read it. And now really I have wonderful. to, that's what yeah, I keep I hearing. Think, I think of her as like, at least one of my earliest um, encounters with true creative nonfiction, right? Wow. Like what, what the genre could do. Um, mm-hmm. And when I said earlier that it was a surprise that I wrote this book, but also, you know, writers like her were so um, eye-opening and influential. And so, you know, we assimilate our influences mm-hmm. and that, we don't even realize what that any, what that will mean. Any writers who grant permission like that, we thank yeah. you. Yes, exactly. And Courtney, you've done it with Spilt Milk. Oh, it's so nice to chat with you and to meet yes, you. Yes, likewise. I absolutely love this book. It's out in paperback. If you haven't read it, I'm sure most of you have, but if you haven't, go get it. You will not be sorry. Lindsay, Thank you so, I'm so excited to read. I'm so excited to read your book. Uh, oh. And I'm glad you're going long. And I can't read to all, read all the long things <laughs> you're making. Thank you so much. And I cannot wait to read your novel of disparate ideas coming yes. together. They shall fuse. Yes, they shall. <laughs> Thank you, Courtney. <laughs>